0: Yeah, I actually cut a lot of
1: Justin's uh, MP3 last week because you could hear like us talking from his headphones. No way, really? (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. I was actually thinking I should probably use shush or something with this because muting on Skype doesn't do enough. I love shush. Yeah, I know.
0: Len, Len hates shush.
1: You don't understand that it gave me, like, the most stressful experience after I, like, had it mess up on me before. Like, imagine you just start working with a client. You're in an important meeting, and then no one can hear you, and you're, like, pressing the button, and, like, Len? Len? Like, God damn it.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's, like, half of my uh, my online meetings, but usually it's not, it's not shush. Well, actually, it's never shush's fault. It's always, like, my inputs are wrong or... I don't know. There's just so many layers of like input and output with sound devices. Like you have your system levels, and then sometimes like if you're in a Hangout, then Chrome has its own like input output that it wants to pick, and then Hangouts might have its own. So I don't know. I feel like I always have problems. Uh, if I'm on my laptop and plugging in headphones, it almost always works. But if I plug in my external, mo- I have a Thunderbolt display at home, uh, and then I have like the the Blue Snowball microphone. I don't know. I always have problems when I'm, when I'm switching devices. Although I will say at, uh, at HashiCorp, we started using this uh, video calling tool called Zoom. And uh, I was on a call on my laptop tethering from, from the car. My, my wife was driving. I was not driving. <laughs> uh, and I, we got home. It switched from LTE to Wi-Fi, uh, te- from tethering to Wi-Fi without dropping the call. And I switched my, my screen and my camera that I was using from my laptop to my external display, all while the call was still, was still going. There was no interruption.
2: That's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we switched to Zoom because we kept hitting the uh, Google Hangouts like 10 or 15 person limit.
1: And Does Zoom do video too?
0: Yeah, yeah, it does, it does video. There's like, like a wall of people, um, like a grid, instead of like Hangouts has like the, the row at the bottom. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty good and there's a, there's a native app for it. So your CPU doesn't, you know, burn up while you're using it. Although I heard Hangouts just re-released or something and it's supposedly better on your, your CPU. Do you
2: all use, what do you use for video calls?
1: We use Hangouts for standup. We
2: don't use anything. Recently someone was, <laughs> uh, at home and we tried using the built-in Screen Hero with Slack and it just did not work out. Neither did Google Hangouts. Does Screen Hero have video? No, I was using screen sharing, not the video part. Oh, uh, okay. Um, yeah, it was just super laggy and dropping connections all the time. I don't think it was the app's fault. I think it was maybe the network. Just didn't like mm. it. What do you all use? Uh, video chat for? Just team meetings? or?
0: Yeah, yeah. We have, like, weekly all-hands meetings at the beginning and the end of the week. And uh, usually when we just want to, like, Call somebody and talk about something. We usually just use Screen Hero because we don't need video. We just need to point point at something on the screen and talk about it. But then we use uh, Zoom for for like all hands meetings.
1: I mostly use Hangouts for our morning standup, and I was actually just thinking how much more I think I would like it if it was in Slack.
0: Like because... just type, just typing. Yeah, I mean,
1: half the time I. I don't remember what people are working on and there's no, you know, record of it anymore because it was just kind of gets thrown out in the ether and in, in hangouts. Have you seen
0: those uh, products that, that kind of give a little framework to that? Like, uh. like there are, there are standup Slack bot services, I guess you could call it where um, the bot will individually ask each person what they're working on. And then once it compiles everybody's standup stuff, it will send an email like a r- report out. So you get a list of like what everybody said.
2: We do this uh, thing called a Slack Up, and everybody just manually types what they're doing for that day. You need a website for that? Oh no, we just—I don't know if this thing stems from something. They just call it a Slack Up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were saying like, you use a product called Slack Up. No, it's just the name they gave it before I got there.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine actually built one of those. It's uh, Tatsu.io, T-A-T-S-U.io. Oh, that's probably the one I saw. I think we talked about it in a previous episode.
0: Why aren't you using it, Len?
1: Uh, I would like to.
0: (laughs) It's only $1 per participant per month.
2: That's expensive. Wink, wink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like tens of dollars a month, depending on your team size. There's also a... uh, I just searched for stand-up Slack on on Google, and the first result was a GitHub bot, or a GitHub repo for a Slack bot called uh, MorganBot. Or if you're uh, Dutch or possibly German, Morgenbot. <laughs> uh, it looks like a Python script. I don't know, but if you're on like a fully remote team, it's kind of nice to like have you know voice human contact once in a while. Yeah. De- depending on like your your team structure, you might do that day to day anyway. Like with your immediate teammates, maybe you don't need to have like a stand up where where that happens. But I kind of like having the. Uh, we don't do it daily but like the the weekly let me hear the people's voices and and see them talking i think it helps speaking of martin fowler just published martinfowler.com has a bunch of articles about different things sometimes you see um sometimes you see links to them and they're in their camel case like you'll see like continuous delivery camel cased as a as a link and that is a, a link to like martin fowler's wiki yeah exactly i don't know if he just published it or some oh yeah it was just a uh, october 19th Remote versus co-located work, where he describes different team structures. There's single site, multi-site satellite workers, which is a single site first team with a couple remote workers. And then there's a remote first team. And then he talks about like the uh, pros and cons of each. Pretty much the gist of it was uh, people, most people work better when they are co-located, but most teams are more productive when they are remote. And that sounds kind of like the opposite, but what he said was like if you are co-locating people, you are limiting your talent pool to just people that are either in your vicinity or willing to relocate. But if you are a remote first team, you don't have any you know geographical restrictions. I took it to also mean that I mean i'm I'm personally more productive when I'm remote. Uh, I, I don't get as much done when I'm on site because like there's just like little, all those little conversations and things that happen are really good for, I guess, morale. Um, but I think kind of bad for getting work done sometimes. Anyway, I, it was a really good article. I will, I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, and also the other takeaway I got from it was, um, or, or he, he called out to the fact that you can't actually measure productivity. So the only data that he has to go on writing this article is asking people what their experiences are working on different kinds of teams. And that, that is like the the only way to really like uh, collate this information. You can't like take a bunch of teams and like compare their, you know, story points.
1: <laughs> That's actually my favorite link on his Blicky. We cannot measure productivity link. I
0: was going to say, he also mentions that um, like Yahoo moving all their developers on site and like Google and Netflix and other big tech companies and preferred everybody on site, whereas a lot of smaller startup companies that came out of open source technology usually prefer to be remote. And he gives examples of like Etsy, Basecamp, GitHub.
2: This is saying because uh, of open source already being distributed that they get that pattern or?
0: Exactly. Open? Yeah.
2: Okay. Did you see that article about the
1: Google employee who lives in a, a van? No. Yeah. <laughs> He's paying so much for rent that he just bought a van and basically lives in the Google parking lot. And Eats, eats, drinks, and showers uh, at Google Campus. And then he sleeps in the back of his... uh, Actually, I think it's a moving truck. Sorry. I think he
0: lives in a van down by the river.
2: (laughs) So is he running out of money? Or is he just tired of paying a lot of rent?
1: Yeah, he's just tired. I think his rent was like, I forget, like $3,000. And he had like four roommates or something. in a tiny, tiny place. Wow.
0: (laughs) San Francisco is expensive. Yeah. That's ridiculous. My favorite quote about like San Francisco was, uh, only the tech industry could take a job that can be done from anywhere and create a land crunch.
1: It was like, it's so disruptive that they created a land crunch in one city.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, and we now, uh, Oh, by the way, I bought a house. Uh, and congrats. Congrats, we now live, I'm proud to be a Pennsylvania, a Pennsylvanian again. <laughs> That's where I grew up. Uh, but we now live actually farther from Philadelphia. We're moving to Westchester, and no matter which way you take, either there's uh, people that are from Philly know there's like 202 and 76 to go downtown, or you could also go south to like 95 and, and, and get to Philadelphia. But there's also two train stations or two train lines. One goes to like Exton Malvern, and one goes to uh, Media Elwyn. And no matter what, which way you take out of all of those, or if you drive, it pretty much takes an hour to get downtown.
2: How do you feel about that?
0: Um, it's not ideal, but I don't go downtown that much anyway. I go downtown like once a week, usually on Tuesdays uh, to go to meetups because a lot of meetups are on Tuesdays that I like. But Westchester is such a cool little town that I'm I'm happy just to like be close to that. Like so, so we're farther from Philadelphia now, but we're much closer to a walkable town. And now I actually have like a use for uh, my bicycle.
2: Do you live in the woods now? No, it's not in the woods. Have you been to Westchester? Yeah. But I think that's probably a picture of your house that seemed woodsy.
0: Oh, uh, no. It's, it's, uh, and there's trees, but not like a lot of woods. Okay. I mean, I guess compared to like Philadelphia, it might be woodsy. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's just like five minutes outside of the, uh, the borough. Okay. Yeah. Living in, living like 15 minutes from everything in New Jersey, we never really used our bicycles except for like exercise. So I'm excited to actually bike into town. It'll be kind of fun.
2: I've been seeing this new type of kid seat for bikes, where the kid sits on the handlebars. And is that sounds getting like it. super dangerous. The breeze in, in the kid's face. Saw a kid riding like that yesterday. It seemed like fun. No, it's it's uh there's a uh, it's like the the grocery cart style where they slip their legs into a spot and buckle up. Any position that a
0: child is on a bike that somebody else is is piloting, I feel like it's
2: really, really dangerous. <laughs> Definitely looks like it, but parents in the city make it seem safe.
0: Our daughter is almost the age where we're going to start, like bringing her around different places on bicycle. Not anytime soon because it's going to be winter time, but maybe. So she'll be about eighteen months when when spring comes around. But we're we're trying to d- debate whether or not we um, get like a bike seat to put on the back of a bicycle, or if she gets like a uh, one of those shuttles like you tow. The benefit of those is if you fall off your bike, it detaches and stops rolling. Uh, whereas whereas if they're like on your bike, then if you fall or flip or something, they they do too.
2: <laughs> have you seen the bike with the, uh, like a roll cage around the the side of where the kid sits? No, that's a good idea. Yeah. There's also the one with the basket in the front. Not on the handlebars, but in front, like on the front wheel, there's a basket and the kid sits in it. Or kids, because it's a box. Len, do you have a bike? I've never heard you talk about it. I do. I don't tend to use it very often. Len though. doesn't like to get
1: sweaty. <laughs> yeah, I sweat like crazy when I bike, so I would need to shower at the place that I'm going, basically, <laughs> if
0: I go there.
1: You don't like to sweat, so,
0: but you work out CrossFit an hour a day?
1: Yeah, but I shower immediately after. It's true. <laughs> um,
0: is, is your place in Seattle more or less bike-friendly?
1: It's more... One thing that's weird, I guess I think it's because of the hills, but it's legal to ride your bike on the sidewalk here, which is kind of my pet peeve when I see people doing it in Philadelphia. Um, but I'll often be like walking my dog with my headphones in and then get get scared shitless because a bike flies past me on <laughs> the sidewalk.
2: Do they at least yeah. ding the bell?
1: Well, I, I always have my headphones uh. in, but um, usually not. I'm just bike flying past you. But there are more bike lanes here than in Philly, so should ride my bike. Uh, The co-working place I go to the most often is about a a 20,
2: 25 minute walk. And I usually walk. Sometimes walking is more peaceful than trying to, uh, you know, deal with cars and other bikers. Yeah. You have to, uh, you know, unhook my bike, my helmet
1: on, ride for 10 minutes then lock it back up. I'd rather just, just walk for 20.
2: (laughs) So recently Someone asked me, uh, did, does your previous job help you to get your next job? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, that's, that's like kind of, um, are you saying like name recognition? Um, no, just preparing you skills-wise. Oh, you,
0: um, yeah, I guess so. I would think that like all of your experience prepares you for your next job.
2: Well, I guess this person is contemplating, um, uh, whether work should be, not work, uh, whether experience to be built outside of work also? What should this person be doing? How much of your daily work contributes to your growth versus time spent outside of work?
0: I, I try to, if I'm like interested in something, a, a good example is like, uh, I want to be better at you know testing or TDD. Uh, you don't need permission for your, from your employer to write tests if, if you're not doing it already like nobody will fire you for writing tests and, and trying to to get better at like testing your code. Uh so if that's something you want to do, you should just do it at work. Uh so yeah, if I'm if I'm interested in something I'm trying to like learn something and get better at it, I will try to apply it to my to my day job. That said, if I'm trying to learn something like elixir, which we don't write in elixir at HashCorp right now, uh I kind of have to do that outside of work cuz there's not really a business sense to do it at work right now.
2: Makes sense. What how about you? What do you what do you usually do? I program outside of work, usually. Your closure script? Closure script, yeah. Uh, probably a little too much at times, but I think it's a combination of both work and outside experience. Helps get you to where your next opportunity might be. I also see a lot of value in um
0: so that work, usually working on a if you're especially if you're on a team, like an app that is not a trivial size. That has been around for probably, you know, a few months to a few years, and uh, the changes might happen quickly. But you might not touch every part of the application. You might only touch like a small part of it. So I, I, I really like uh, when you're working on side projects for yourself, even just like little toy things. Taking something from from scratch, like running the initializer for for Rails or Ember or whatever, all the way to like doing the, the CSS and designing it and shipping it to like Heroku or wherever you're going to host it to production, like doing that all end to end in a short amount of time is kind of really cool. Um, just being able to touch every part of the application and and, and start and finish it like in it depends, like it, it could be like a day, a week, you know,
2: a month maybe, but a relatively short amount of time. I think it's really cool. How about you, Len? Does... Does your last consulting gig help your next consulting gig?
1: Uh, It depends if it's a new technology or not, I think, like Justin said. I've actually found giving talks to be really helpful. I think everything that I've learned really, really well, I mostly learned because I gave a talk on it. So I think I need to do more like a talk-driven learning. (laughs) I was actually just thinking about what we talked about in our last episode about live coding, and I think there's something to live coding, like being almost like a performance and like making you really understand your uh, your tools really well if you're gonna you're gonna do that. So I think like a like the Phoenix demo was kind of an important thing to like live code because you could see like how quickly you can get up something. Uh, so kind of to impart that idea that. Uh, this framework or this thing is so productive that I can write X in like Y minutes with the caveat that you better actually do it really well. Build a blog in 15 minutes. Well, the Elixir thing is like build a chat application in 10 minutes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The hello world of WebSockets.
2: So I heard you're using a cool JavaScript framework, Len. (laughs) (laughs) Called React.
1: Yeah, I I kind of melted down last week about my React project. Um, and I think I understand why people hate Backbone so much because I'm finding myself having the same feelings I've heard so many people talk about with Backbone, that they kind of just make Backbone spaghetti and end up full of rage. And I would always say, oh, just use marionette. Uh, use these patterns and everything's fine. And then no one uh, believed me. And everyone hates Backbone, and it's still like a, a punchline. Um, but yeah, React is ridiculous. Like React is just a stupid view. <laughs> I mean, it's a good view, but that's all there is. And then the answer to everything is, oh, just use Flux. But there's literally more than thirty Flux implementations. I think we drew the short straw with with uh, picking one that was soon to fall out of favor.
0: Do you? So it seems like uh, React and Flux, like. Uh- it's more of like a library approach versus a framework approach like a framework is like ember or rails uh, whereas a library are these like small composable pieces that you kind of fit together as you need them um, but i I bet everybody writing uh, react code probably needs the same things D- is there a like canonical collection of these libraries that you should be using like is there like a Facebook stack or or some kind of framework that like uh, encompasses all of these things.
1: No, no, no. That's the thing I was complaining about. Like the I was in the React Slack, which just moved to some other service, but the React Slack had literally 153 different channels, uh, all for the different libraries. So yeah, there's way, way too many rooms. Yeah, I think everybody's using Redux now. It's the most popular Flux implementation. But then you still had to do something like for just fetching data. The app that I was on had a lot of just bare jQuery AJAX calls. Uh, and then all kind of gross conditionals because it was using a REST-based backend. So all kind of gross conditionals to say, oh, uh, you know, do a, a, a put instead of a, a post uh, when you're going to update. Which, you know, like the model layer of Backbone uh, or data layer of Ember would just take care of you. You just call save. So we actually did bring in ampersand models and collections so we can fetch data with that inside of our stores.
0: It sounds like a lot of like tribal knowledge. Like you need to tell somebody how to structure things before they start writing something. Like like yeah. in, in, in your application, you probably have like patterns that you've developed. And it seems like that team communication would be really important in like ensuring that everybody's on the same page about how to accomplish something. Is that correct or incorrect?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know where these best practices are kind of like uh, stored. But I, I think I had that same problem with marionette. Like you guys worked on a marionette project I had where I had this architecture that I would point people to. I would say, oh, look at backbone rails. Uh, I'm just going to steal this architecture whole cloth. And it was actually, in a way, it was flux-like. Like I didn't believe in views actually doing anything directly. Like views are just emitted an event uh, to this message bus. And that's basically the way React works. You just kind of emit an event to an action. Uh, and then in my marionette code, that event would normally go to the data layer, which would fire another event, which would kind of go to the controllers. So it's actually kind of flux-like in that regard. But yeah, I think I think we made a big mistake in this kind of like hooking up the router to, the, um, to reflux. So we have raising uh, a flux implementation called reflux. Uh, and then it was kind of ambiguous as far as how the pieces were supposed to work with the router. So basically the router mounts a component or changes the props of component. And then we have that component emit the action that it needs data. And I think we should probably held that in the router. So we have a lot of state trying to figure out basically with whether the component needs to fetch data or not. And that gets really gross. And for everyone talking about React being immutable, at least this app and a few other apps that I've seen are are not.
0: Like React doesn't do anything to guarantee that. Flux, the idea of it would guarantee that, but you need to like follow that pattern, right?
1: Yeah. And it gets really gross because if you do change state in a component, the uh, component re-renders. So if something in your render method is changing state, uh, it basically just locks your tab up you get 100 percent CPU, and you got to kill it, and you don't even get a stack trace, which is uh, some fun times I've encountered.
2: Well, then should you not change state in the render?
1: Uh, not in render, but if like if there's like a chain effect of things that okay. fire, then like, something actually changes state, then you're in, in trouble.
2: Do you use immutable JS?
1: No.
0: Is that a like a thing? Like what? What is that? That is
2: immutable data structures for JavaScript from Facebook. It, it,
0: Oh okay so it's a, it's a library of data structures,
2: yeah, so instead of using the regular ones you just use these things and um
0: is that kind of like uh, in in ember we do like
2: ember a to like create an array maybe mm. um yeah, there's also mori, which is closer scripts data structures ported to javascript oh.
0: so what is ohm isn't, ohm, isn't ohm is also just a th- wrapper
2: around react
0: oh. <laughs> I'm so clueless on all this stuff. I thought Ohm
2: was uh, data structures. No. Uh, but last night, uh, I read the first two paragraphs, but uh, I saw an article uh, on the Ohm wiki about property-based testing with your UI. Um, uh, pretty excited to finish that. Oh, cool. So all these little edge cases you could probably catch with property-based testing. I guess that will that'll be built in. and uh, I'm not going to say built in that will be something with OM Next because it was published on the OM wiki.
1: So one of the places we're kind of managing state to and I think this is the original sin of not loading data in the router but when the component asks for data like there are a few hooks to ask for data for uh, and one of them is component did mount but the way the router works it actually doesn't remount a component it just changes the properties so it'll actually just change like you know, the ID and all the URL parameters. So we kind of have a few different hooks and then we kind of have state to say like, is this thing loading? Uh, And then that's like state we need to change when we get our data back. So every component knows whether or not it's currently fetching data or not. Hmm. Or waiting on data, at least.
2: We should get a React person on the podcast. When is a React person? We can get free (coughs) consulting advice. (laughs) I feel like Len is poisoned by his project a little bit.
1: Yeah. I think that's what happened with everybody in Backbone. <laughs> I thought about doing more React. I'm sure, I mean, tons of smart people like React. I'm sure I'm just doing it wrong and just bitter because every time I touch my project, like five other things break. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's some like original sins in this project that just poisoned everything. And I also blew up my computer last week. So that just made me extra bitter too.
2: Your Halloween MacBook?
1: My Halloween MacBook?
2: Then you say, you were like, oh, it's Halloween and I tried a new Oh, charger. yeah, no, I really, I thought I didn't blow up my computer, but I
1: really did. Uh, how did you blow it up? So Keeping I my up should have explode. known better, but I bought an aftermarket Power Adapter.
0: Oh, it actually did explode.
1: <laughs> I was like, oh, look at this. It's so small and there's USB chargers and I need an extra charger and it's cheaper than the Apple ones. That way I can just like leave this one in my bag and have an extra charger. Uh yeah, I plugged it in in my co-working place and my MacBook just shut off. Uh and then I turned it back on and the fans were on 100% and it it's, couldn't find a battery.
2: Uh Steve Jobs was like, "What are you <laughs> doing?"
1: <laughs> uh see, so yeah, I think some kind of like battery sensor is dead. The only charger that would work was the one that blew it up. <laughs> the official MacBook chargers would not charge my MacBook. Um
2: did you get a new one?
1: I don't know. I have an appointment Tuesday.
2: Oh, it's not fixed yet.
1: It's not fixed yet. I'm on my old MacBook now. Yeah. Like,
2: are the appointments in Seattle like way backed up? Or
1: yeah, there was. I tried on Friday. The whole weekend was booked.
2: The next the earliest thing was Tuesday. Wow. Philly is so awesome in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> it's cheaper. You get appointments really fast.
0: I'm also pretty far from an Apple store now. In Jersey, we're, we're like around the corner from
2: one. Well, you're like 20 minutes away from Springboard. Springboard, Springboard, in Exton. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, do you go to Springboard versus Apple Store for anything?
0: I bought my Sonos at Springboard. I mean, that was it. <laughs> I don't like Sonos. Am I the only person who doesn't like Sonos? I feel like I, I think so. I have a friend that loves Sonos and has like a bunch of components from them.
2: You have two friends, me and the whoever the other. Oh, person and is. you
0: too. Yes, I have at least two friends. I mean, it's really expensive. It's expensive, and it's like. It doesn't do what I want it to do, which is, like, all of my music is on my phone. So if I want to, correct me if I'm wrong, if I want to play music from my phone, and I have an iPhone, to a Sonos, I need to open the Sonos app and use their music app to send music from my phone to the Sonos, right?
2: I wouldn't describe it that way. But I, yes. can't
0: just, like, I can't just, like, connect to Bluetooth and stream, like,
2: whatever app I'm using on my phone. So the trick around that would be, if you want to do it that way, either get something like a Bluetooth connector for your line-in, line, line in, I guess it would be, mm-hmm. uh, and connect to that, or do it through your Apple TV. But all your music... Ha- I've gotten so used to all my music happening through the app, um, because I'll do SoundCloud, RDO, or podcasts on my uh, phone... You just get used to going to the app, and the app has greatly improved. But I get, I get your gripe, but you, you get used to it.
0: I can I can um, I can respect the probable great quality of the sound that the speaker generates, but it seems like a lot of hoops to jump through to get my my content on there. Mm. And like I know I know they support like some streaming services like maybe Amazon or Google Music, but I don't I don't use those, so it doesn't really help me.
2: Yeah, the only one they don't support right now, well, is Apple Music. And I'm by the end of the Apple year, story. Apple. Yeah, Apple says by the end of the year they will be integrated. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: That's interesting.
2: Uh, it was appealing to me because it's easy to set up and there are no wires. The sub is plugged in somewhere and the soundbar is plugged in and that's it. Recently, we were able to get rid of the sound bridge, which is a thing that. You used to have to connect all your speakers, too. So it's getting better. You do have a pretty sweet setup, though. So
0: I do. I just have the
2: Amazon Echo. Oh, I thought you had the... Um...
0: Oh, those speakers. Yeah, I don't really yeah. play much through this. We just use those for, like, TV. We have we okay. surround sound for our TV. I'm excited for the new
2: Apple TVs. Are you getting one? Yeah. Are you ordering it today?
0: Oh, yeah. It's pre today, isn't it? Yeah. I probably will, then. Uh, because at our new house, we did not get cable. So we just have internet really yeah and I'm gonna I'm also going to run uh, cat six Ethernet cabling to to the TV so that so that Apple TV has a really good con- internet connection So in our last house I don't know why but like stuff just like wouldn't play sometimes our wireless is kind of shoddy even though we have like a lot of good wireless equipment I think probably because the baby monitor interfered with it.
2: who did you get for internet? FiOS Yeah
0: Verizon Fios. It's so fast.
2: Not helping my paycheck out, man. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Commercial-free Hulu is like my favorite thing.
0: Oh, we just we cause... just signed up for HBO Now, which is exactly the same as HBO Go. But HBO Go, you need a cable subscription. But the benefit of HBO Now also is um, HBO Go, like the app signs you out every week or two on the, on the iPad or or I guess Apple TV also, and it gets so frustrating. You're like, I want to watch this. And then you're per- presented with like a, a password screen, and you're typing it on your TV probably. It's really annoying. Uh, so I'm I'm glad that like HBO Now is, I, presumably, will keep me signed in because it doesn't need to like authenticate with Verizon.
1: The Apple TV ba- app's really bad though. It always takes me like ten clicks to find. Uh... John Oliver every Monday morning. Oh,
0: you know what? Yeah, you know what I don't like is um like Netflix is really good about when you're watching a series, it just plays the next one automatically.
1: Yeah.
0: Or or if you like stopped watching episode three previously, it will just have episode four like on the main screen or like in your watch list. But HBO's app is like really dumb about like series. Like we we, we're watching Veep, and it never knows what the next episode is. It never it never shows you a link to it. Most of the time, it
2: shows you a link to the previous episode. And it also episode... doesn't show like how did you watch this one, or how much, how many minutes of this episode did you watch? Like, yeah, you should know this.
0: Before we do picks, can we talk about one other thing? I don't know if if you both saw, but Ruby is gaining a safe navigation
1: operator. What does that mean?
0: You know, you know, try in Ruby and Rails.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I knew it well.
0: Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Matts has accepted a a change or like an SVN commit or whatever. Um, essentially any method, you just prefix it with a question mark and it acts like
1: try. But you prefix it?
0: Yeah, so so if you have a user and you want to like get the username, and you're not sure if the user is nil or not, you can just use your dot question mark name.
2: will that lead to really... Shitty code? <laughs>
0: yes.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's just a prettier way to do try basically, right?
0: I know, but like try... I mean, I, I guess it'll just... Every team's different and we'll just have to see like over time. Um, but like try is like ugly enough that you see it and you're like, that shouldn't be there. So whatever use case you're using it for, you probably have a really good reason to use it or, or like you're a little more, uh, it comes under like more scrutiny than like if it's built into the language and it's just like a single character. Like can you imagine like reviewing a pull request and you just see like question mark name instead of name? Like will that jump out to you as like, hey, this probably should have been handled somewhere else.
1: I mean, I'm still writing a lot of Coffee Scripts for a few projects, actually, and that's built in a Coffee Script too, except it's just postpended. So uh, you can always just add a question mark, and it'll basically do transpile to code that, that checks to see whether or not that exists. And you could even do that on methods, too. So you could, like, pass something a callback and do callback question mark parens, and if it's not there, nothing happens.
0: Doesn't say, like, undefined is not a function. Right,
1: it just won't do anything.
0: So do you do you use it? Um, I think I think try and like other kinds of nil guards are really useful for for views, because usually you wanna, you want to show something to the, to the user um, and I mean, ideally, you have some other layer that that does this, not in the view. But it can be useful like in the view, just to like chain a bunch of methods together and and, and display something. And then if any of those are nil, you need to guard against it. So I can see try being useful there. Uh, And then the other benefit is if it returns nil, you could, let's say you wanted to show uh, like n slash a, like for not available, instead of nothing, you could just, you know, chain a bunch of stuff and then do the or or operator and then say na string, which I think I've done in some view code before. But in general, if you're checking for nil all over the place, I think it's a larger code smell that you should not just uh, willy nilly use try
2: to, to, to get around.
0: Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, but as you were talking, so I tend not to use try also. But is it a smell if the language provides it?
0: Well, that that's that's the fear of like adding this to Ruby. It like pretty much everybody that uh, I guess veterans of the Ruby community that I follow on Twitter, pretty much everybody was like, uh, "This is gross." But Ruby has never been uh, shy of introducing things that enable people to write terrible code. So why not? Add some more.
2: <laughs> I guess you just don't have to use it if you don't want to, right? RuboCop. <laughs> yeah,
0: RuboCop with the with question mark unless you're an app views. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up and rant about it a little bit. Wait, is
1: it gonna be in Ruby three?
0: Ah, uh, presumably. It's merged into trunk master and we're already in Ruby two dot two. So I think I think next major release is probably three. I don't know if it's gonna be a two dot three or not. It wouldn't break anything because I don't think you can prefix a question mark in a method name right now. Right. Yeah, it would be nice to get that functionality without having to import Rails if you need it somewhere else uh, or active support core extension. Yeah, and for those that don't know, try is is a method defined on Object, which everything inherits from, that essentially just implements send. So if you, if you call try method, it just calls that method on that an object, and then it's also defined on Nil class. So Nil ha- also has try, and that just returns self. So then you can just Chain a bunch of try things, and if any of them are nil, you'll just get nil out the other end. When I first learned what monads were, I thought they were nil guards because <laughs> you can use them for the same thing.
1: You guys, ready for picks? Sure. <laughs>
0: Lindsay, I don't want to talk about this anymore.
1: Uh, I'll go first. So my pick is a Chrome extension. I'm not sure exactly how to say it. It's like Hibao. Hibao. Uh, it's app dot get h uh, i b o u dot and it's a Chrome extension that lets you take notes. And then it will remind you about those notes uh, with kind of like an exponential back off. Uh, So just to help with learning. Uh, So I find it useful to take a note on something and know that it's going to actually come back up to review. Jervon, do you have a pick?
2: Yeah, Uh, my music pick is a mix by Jazzy Jeff from the Shamhala Festival. I'll link to that. And programming wise, let's see. Found a site called sysadmincast that has some useful content on it, so I'll pick that, sysadmincast. Those are my picks. Justin, you have a pick?
0: Yeah, um, there is a repository on GitHub, uh, I believe by Jessica Dillon, uh, Jesse Card, that has a list of remote jobs. So if you currently work on site somewhere and you don't like it, uh, please check this out. Uh, Is HashiCorp on here? We are, cool. Yeah, so I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, it's just github.com slash jessicard, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-R-D, slash remote-jobs. Uh, and there's must be like over 100, 200 here. Uh, what was the one that you picked out, Lynn, that you thought was cool? Uh, I don't know. I sent it to you, and you were like, oh, oh, uh, Cards Against Humanity is listed what? on here. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, it was like Blue Bottle Coffee, Automatic, Fastly. So yeah, check that out uh, if you are job hunting. Um, also, jobs at hashcorp.com.
1: Uh So follow us on Twitter at Turing Cool. Show notes are at turing.cool slash 69. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.